Hey guys, Jared here, CEO and founder of Luminous. This is the Ops Unfiltered podcast. I started Ops Unfiltered because I know what it feels like to be in operations and e-commerce. You're handling every single part of the business. It's easy to feel siloed in. It's easy to feel like you have to find a solution for everything. I hope that by bringing raw conversations from other operators in e-commerce, that you can extract some value and not feel alone. Many of the operations leaders in e-commerce are running into the same problems that you're running into. So I hope that maybe their solutions can be your solutions. Maybe you can feel not so alone in the warehouse, in purchasing, in your supply chain. So that's my hope. I hope this can be valuable for all of you. Let's dive in to have some raw conversations. So multiple factories helps you make sure that you're really not getting screwed, obviously. Because if you show up as an American, sometimes they will assume they can charge you a lot more. Two people can go quote at the same time. So you can go get the same quote from the same factory and they'll go get the same quote. Then you know you're not getting screwed around with. But in the end, we don't usually try to negotiate lower than what a factory's. If you want to cut costs, where are you willing to cut your quality? If it's in like Boeing industry, you can't cut quality yeah, anyway. Exactly. Right? Admittedly, I haven't run into many problems with factories underperforming or having poor quality. What advice would you give to a client on how to approach it to get the best results? So you find out there's a defect. What would you recommend on the client's end? And then what would Innovasia go and do to investigate and find that? Defects are probably the most anxiety-inducing thing you can do as a supply chain manager because... Can you just introduce yourself and sort of qualify... The angle we're going to go at in this podcast is going to be sourcing and dealing with Chinese factories. Well, not Chinese factory, any factory. Right. But like qualify yourself on like on why you know what you're talking about there. Yeah. So um, back in 2015, I came home or I had just got home from Taiwan. I served a mission in Taiwan and I, I was speaking Mandarin Chinese. And my dad was working in China at the time. He had been working there for a long time. He also had served a Chinese-speaking mission. So I started going on business trips with him over to China. And it was my first real introduction to it beyond uh, just being at home and hearing my dad on the phone, talking in Chinese with people Mm -hmm. and factories and figuring things out. Um, My first trip over there, I just remember falling asleep on train rides because my my dad had this pacing where he was just going every day. So we would hit the ground. He had his sleep schedule locked in and he just hit the ground running and we're there for seven days. And, and your dad's Darren? Right? Yeah, my dad's yeah. Darren, yeah. Because I, I know a lot of people in my network know your dad. Yeah, so, so yeah. We, we would hit the ground, he would hit the ground running and I just remember trying to keep up, really. How did he get started in import-export business? So that goes back a long ways. He started just sourcing things um, and helping people find them. And uh, in sometime in the early 90s or even late 80s, the supply, the infrastructure boom of China started happening where they started making all these machines and farmers would buy up these big machines mm-hmm. to put them in warehouses. Um, and then they would hide them from the government because it was not legal for them to be doing anything but what the farm was designed for. But then they would find customers off source and then start manufacturing things for them, plastics, clothing, whatever it was. And my dad went over really early and started sourcing from the very beginning, kind of. Wow. And some of these clients would send them over because it was the new thing to do. 
Not necessarily because they knew what they were doing. Then when you say and clients, you're talking about U.S.-based companies yeah, that yeah. manufacture products. Correct. That might, it's like, my go figure is, this out. Yeah, my dad's look, helping them find things. So he just headed out to China and uh, went to a few trade shows, started digging his heels in, and then started sourcing directly to the factories too. Because a lot of times at the at the uh, trade shows, it is just trading companies. It's The factories don't always make it all the way out there because they don't have the... They don't always have the revenue to do it or the means, especially in early China. Mm, <laughs> yeah. The transportation wasn't what it is now. So oh, that's that's an interesting point. Yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll dive into that more later too. Yeah, like Alibaba and yeah, platforms. No, it's epic. So that's the background he came from, and then I dove into it in around 2015 with him, and all the way through 2020, I was pretty much doing supply chain with him, and um, in 2015. I went over with him in 2014, I think. In 2015 is when I really Dude, started. So doing you, it. You, you got to you got to just learn on the job with your dad post Chinese mission or yes. Tai Taiwan mission. Yes. Um, where you learn Mandarin. You just got to sit with him and see how he negotiated deals, how he checked for quality. Wow, what what an opportunity. It was crazy. That's sick. It was That's crazy. Awesome. I think the main thing I have to say about it is after doing it with him through 2019 or 2018, even, I quickly realized that his Wealth of experience is what led to his success. And my mm -hmm. lack of experience caused me to have certain oversights. And so starting around 2017, I set out on a mission to document everything. <sighs> because I realized you can't just shoot from the hip. Even though I've seen my dad doing it for two years, I don't necessarily actually have the same skill set as him. And he, so if I want to be... The same experience. Like right, he, yeah. yeah. He has a skill set from all this wealth of experience that I lack. So that's what I did. 2017, I started like really asking him tons of questions and then writing it all down and then kind of creating a system around it. And that's when I started getting into, that's how I ended up getting into the software side of things is just kind of proactively trying to uh, build something. And at the time I found low code platforms that kind of let me dip my feet in the water. And that's how I started. Got it. Started. So yeah, that's my... My backstory, but that's China though, all the different kinds of products that you end up making and how you find those products for the different clients that you run into, it, it challenge, it's challenging and uh, time consuming too. <laughs> you can spend all day traveling to different factories and not find what oh, you're yeah. looking to. <laughs> yeah. <that>? So <laughs> specifically on the ops side of things, like this is so many people in e-commerce companies, um, especially in operations, they, they have a baseline understanding of how their goods get made. So if you're, if you are a direct consumer company or forget it, you just sell consumer goods, mm -hmm. you just sell something, whether it's distribution or like direct consumer, a lot of times the purchasers there or like the director of supply chain or the COO, they're doing the purchasing. Something that I found fascinating was they didn't fully understand that that guy they were talking to in China or mm -hmm. the factory that they thought was the factory. Many times it's, they're just an agent or a trading company. They, they don't even realize it. No, um, but it usually does. Can, can you explain, let's, let's dive in the a little difference. bit to, to what you did between 2015, like what your, your dad's company and your company did helping people source products and managing the supply chain. Yeah. Why Why not just use an Alibaba? Why not just use the guy or girl that you've been dealing with for 15 years? Like, yeah. 
to, to kind of summarize it, a lot of it is actually just trust. Um, and, and we actually started the internship program because of that. Uh, we would send the interns out to the factories, and a lot of times we'd send them with a Chinese person with them. And the interns we sent Wait, over... Explain the in, this internship yeah. thing. Because I know you guys got a lot of Chinese-speaking BYU students. Yeah. No, yeah. Which so was all, a killer strategy. Pretty much all way. the interns we sent over, they could all speak Chinese. Not necessarily mm-hmm. fluent. They were somewhere between fluency, like incredibly fluent, and some of them still learning. But they had enough Chinese under their belt that when we would send them into the factories with a person who speaks Chinese... We would tell them, speak English when you first arrive, because you're going to start to tell a lot about who this kind of person is if the, you're, the person you're with, who actually is a Chinese native, speaking with them, if they speak about you in any kind of derogatory terminology. Okay, so, so all right, you, you have an internship program where you get Chinese-speaking Americans, and this was from, at the time from BYU. Yes. And their mission is go and vet the factory or the place that these companies are sourcing, sourcing from. Like, from. See, see, what it's, see what's actually going on. And your first bit of advice is just don't even let them know you speak English or you speak Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. Just see, watch and see what they say. That's really interesting. A mm-hmm. lot of times we would frame it as the client is coming to visit your factory because, uh, I mean, they can represent the client on our behalf to go see the factory, right? And so it's assumed that they wouldn't speak Chinese that they're there to see the factory's operations. And so how they got treated often would determine whether or not we would uh, partner with them or, or even source from them because it's, it, it instantly showed a certain level of trust or commitment or diligence towards the, the uh, decision to work with them and source from them. Have you ever personally had any experiences or your interns have experiences where they did speak in a really derogatory way and you're just like, nah, this, this ain't working. Yes, we've had, oh, I think there's it. been at least two times that I'm aware of where the employee was openly mocked while, uh, while they were walking through. Um, I can't, I, you know, I, I'm going to have troubles recalling the exact terms that they used in Chinese because it's been so long. But essentially, they were just kind of making fun of them uh, having to come all this way and not being able to speak Chinese and, and really just belittling them in a way. And then when you when they find out that you can speak Chinese, they just feel like complete idiots and just complete jerks. And it it it's actually super satisfying to reveal that you speak Chinese at the end when they have been that way. I only got it maybe once, but it wasn't extreme. Uh, but yeah, a couple of our interns had it really bad, um, at least on two cases that I can remember. And it was just clear. Interesting. The whole experience felt negative. We just immediately hightailed out of there, went with a different factory to source from. It's like, oh, what is this American dude doing? Yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like they send his, this guy sent his this little peon all the way out here to take a look at the factory, and he's not even going to understand anything that we do here. Right? It's that, just that kind of like, but by, by the way, I hear you wicked yeah. Chinese. I uh, I hear I, that from Alex. You know what? I would say that from a communication standpoint, dialogue, I'm above average, far above average. But in terms of reading and writing, writing, I'm terrible. But I have friends in Guatemala, a friend in Guatemala that is unbelievable. He's trilingual, and I just he he writes all of his notes in Chinese. Oh, that's, that's so. So I come up to his desk when I'm working with him down there. And I see him at his desk and everything is in Chinese. And I'm like, 
this what's your what like you you keep all of your notes in chinese chinese isn't even your main language he's like yeah and my phone is in chinese and my emails are in chinese that's that's such a good way to keep it up though yeah it's incredible it's quite it's something else but yeah it i i love speaking chinese though i think there's a different everyone has a little bit of a different personality um in the languages that you learn yeah i don't know how to describe it really oh totally it's also partially culture too i think as well. It's also how you learn it. So I, I learned Cantonese first, and then I learned Mandarin. I think my Mandarin is a lot more like standardized, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my Cantonese is way more colloquial. It's and it's just because like Cantonese, like as a mission in Hong Kong, I I spoke on the street all day, every, every day. day. Yeah. And like in Mandarin, my the Mandarin that I learned was mainly business. Like I, I worked at a Chinese company, so right. Um, yeah, totally hear what you're saying. Okay, so so back to you. You would send these interns. They would they would find out if what type of factory they're dealing with, what type of person. Vet the factory. Um, yeah. Vet them out. Then what other services would you guys do beyond that? We let the interns handle a lot of the, the communication between factory as a supply after they found it and vetted it, depending on the client and the level of uh, the level of purchasing that was going on. Usually, we would just let the interns handle everything. Um, we would create like safety nets for them because if you know lead times on things and you always are ordering ahead, if something isn't happening quite right, then you just reach out and you're like, hey, I noticed this hasn't started yet. The lead time is... Thirty so days. Let, let, let's let's yeah. back up so, a little bit. Just so, so we'd help. We'd let them manage that, though. We'd let them managing the ordering, purchasing. You, you have this infrastructure of interns that speak Chinese that you've sourced from BYU and or or UV, wherever. Like, but they're, they're these Americans that speak Chinese. They're yeah. super excited for the opportunity. They're planted in areas in China. They actually live there. They're boots on the ground. So let's say, for example, like a thread wallet or like a insert direct consumer brand A or distribution company A in America, they'd Mm -hmm. be like, hey, we really want to use your company. And what you're managing is the probably probably the sourcing of the factory. Yep. That could be their existing factory or helping them find a new one. And then the production process from start to finish. Finish. And you would you would really so you would train and have a program and you would trust your interns to fit in your processes. To yeah. make sure the goods came out as promised. Intended. Yeah. Okay. A lot of times the goods we would have them manage were not highly technical. I would say most of the time they weren't highly technical. Got it. I think that that was relatively important that we would always be finding clients that would have something that wasn't so technical that our interns actually had opportunities to get their hands dirty. Because we we wanted them to actually figure it out. We would provide a certain amount of training and we would answer phone calls if they had questions. But we would simply tell them, you know, this is your opportunity to go shake hands with Chinese factories and figure out how to put together a deal and and place a purchase order with them yeah. and, and see how that goes. See what the lead times are like, you know, communicate all that out, document it, send it to us. Let us know how it's going. Keep us up, up on, keep, help us know how it's going, you know. Like, yeah. Send us emails, reports, things like that. Um, I mean, so I I, yeah. I really like that because when you've been ex- when you've actually been to China and when you've been exposed to supply chain and purchasing to a certain degree, obviously yours is even much deeper than mine. Mm-hmm. But 
you start understanding like people have a rudimentary, they just have a naive understanding of sourcing from China. What happens so many times is, like I said, like the guy that you've been dealing with that you've purchasing from, he's not actually the factory or she's not actually the factory. And that's why a service like yours is so valuable. It's like, have you ever sent somebody to go and really check out? Or is this just, is this an agent that's working through a trading company that's like the fact you could be three layers behind the factory and you don't even know it. Well, and sometimes it's a different factory every time. So you'll get different explain that of, yeah. you'll get different levels of quality because the trading company is just looking for the best deal. They're not looking to standardize a certain level of quality. They're looking to opt to capitalize on the biggest level of profit they can. Okay, well, ex- explain explain this because so the way that comes out in consumer goods businesses is like what the hell like that you receive a product front <laughs> yeah. you wrote a PO to the same guy or girl that you've been purchasing from for so long and it's like. Totally different. And you've been purchasing this for like, say, a couple of years. Ages. And it comes out totally different. And you're like, what? The, like, did they even use the same wood? Like, are the cuts yeah. the same? So different, that's most yeah. likely what? A trading company that sourced another factory. factory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. They, I think they do that pretty frequently to help capitalize on their, their income. Because also when you're with a factory for a long time, it's not out of the norm for them to want to up rates on you just a little bit gradually, you know, over time, because they know there's a certain level of trust and there's a certain level of we're worth more because we're getting better at it even, right? As they manufacture yeah. for you over a long period of time. And <clears throat> as frustrating as that can be, they also recognize there are limits. So usually it's not like, you know, you can't, you can use a factory for pretty much ever if you have a good relationship with them and mm-hmm. they, they won't screw you over. But yes, with trading companies, they know it's a trading company too. And so factories that are partnered with trading companies are usually even harder on them than they are on somebody like us, where they know they have this connection directly with the American client. And so the potential for you as a trading company in China to get your rates busted on you or, or jacked up on you yeah. is is relatively high. Um I personally, I think that sometimes a lot of trading companies will say, well, we have, we have the inside scoop Yeah, that I think that in a lot of ways, you going to China directly, uh, gives you a head advantage, a huge advantage over having it using well, a trading company. So this brings up a really good point because I think so many ops people, purchasers at these companies, they, they're, they're very motivated by cost. And typically the, the route that I see and that I've even gone in the past, before I had any sourcing experience, is like, okay, I want to cut costs on this good right here. So I'm going to go to Alibaba or Main China or Global Sources, and I'm just going to shop everybody against each other. Like, which it typically doesn't, like, that has its results. And we kind of talked about that, where a lot of times you're dealing with agents or trading companies. What would be, in your opinion, if if you're trying to cut costs or, like, actually establish a long-term relationship with a with a factory get more visibility into the actual cost of of goods in in your product mm-hmm. what what would your advice be like instead of going that alibaba made in china route like how do you actually cut costs and have, maintain a good relationship with a factory yeah you know i would say for this specific question um typically we would actually go and source multiple factories and then 
the factories, we don't necessarily negotiate with them. It's very rare that we would actually negotiate with a factory because we know if we decide to cut their costs, they're going to cut corners. Mm, Usually our experience has been, if a factory says this is how much it costs, that's how much it costs for them. And if we try to help them bring the price down or we ask for a cheaper price, that means that they're going to have to give up on something. What that is, isn't always clear. Sometimes it's less quality. Maybe they decrease the number of quality assurance workers Mm. that are reviewing the products as they're going out. Maybe they take your PO and they mess up your lead times because but, another so product another what's, client's what's more the important. balance though what's the balance between not negotiating at it I, or I guess that's probably why you go to multiple factories right yes. so so you you get an idea okay th- like this one's way too high we can negotiate on this or like no like they're actually quoting pretty standard here like if we go lower yeah so multiple factories idea? helps you make sure that you're really not getting screwed obviously um, and also having partners in China that are Chinese can also help with that too. Because if you show up as an American, sometimes they will assume they can charge you a lot more. But mm. that helps having at least two or three people in China that you have an office with there to just two people can go quote at the same time. So you can go get the same quote from the same factory and they'll go get the same quote. Then you know you're not getting screwed around with. That's initial vetting right there, right? Because if they're telling me a different price and they're telling them, that's not fun. They're giving me two different messages. But uh, either way, that's, that's, that's those are, these are kind of different strategies that you can use. It's a mixed bag of strategies that you can kind of use to try, to try to find the best prices with factories. But in the end, we don't usually try to negotiate lower than what a factory has asked for. We will give them a price point sometimes where we'll say, look, this is our cutoff. And if you can't make it happen at this price, then it's not a good business strategy for us either. So our customer needs it at this cost. Otherwise, they are not going to make what they need, right? Because the consumers are only going to buy it at certain prices. And the people selling the product usually know what the price they need, the price Mm. point is. So you go to multiple factories, you do your best. And factories can oftentimes actually have relatively different costs because of how they're optimized or their quality of work. So sometimes you just need to find a factory that's a less, a little bit less quality, right? If you want to cut costs, where are you willing to cut your quality? If it's in the, if it's in like Boeing industry, you can't cut quality yeah, anyway. Exactly. Right? <laughs> but if you're making like a little keychain, you can find a different factory that has much less quality assurance. You know, you, it's it's finding the right factory. If you find the Oakley factory that makes sunglasses for Oakley, there they might not be the right factory for you to make your $20 pair of sunglasses that you're going to sell mm-hmm. to other people because the Oakley factory has perfected an expensive procurement and manufacturing process that results in high-quality products. So asking them to go lower on another a different product because you perceive it as being worth less doesn't fit into their manufacturing plans interesting they have to piece it together like well if we want to hit this cost we can't bring in our normal laborers they can't come in that day they can't come in this day it's a hassle for them so factories in my view each factory has a price point that they've determined from their internal operations and Find finding the right factory to fit your needs is usually where you try that's, to go. That's that's good. Let's say that one more time. Yeah. Finding the right factory to, to fit, fit your needs. needs. Uh, 
because normal normally ops people that uh, including myself um you, you're too tunnel vision on price and that's it mm-hmm. like this needs to cost five dollars around it's yeah. like well what if you're just working with the wrong factory to get you to five dollars or yeah. you you might be just working with a trading company you know yeah but interesting yeah. Either or, right? The trading company thing is too, because there's another middleman in between now, so you don't get to work with them directly. Oh okay. yeah, big picture, we would find people who spoke Mandarin. We'd let them gain all this experience in America, in China, finding the factories, and because they would do the hard work finding the factories, it would help us find the right factory, and they got the experience of going out and sourcing and doing that. Now, this <clears throat> this is what I find really interesting. How Okay, so an RFQ or like a request for quote comes in like, hey, man, we do we sell $20 million a year of this wallet right here. Um, can you guys help us find it? What how, how do you source factories in China or Vietnam or like what what is that process like? Do you actually do you send people physically? Is there a directory that they look up? Is like, how, how does that work? I'd say there's a myriad of different ways that you can approach this. Um, but the most common is usually um, Alibaba has a Chinese version of the website called 168. Yep. Yeah. So if you go to 168, you're going to get the China version of everything, which is perfect uh, for anybody who you work with directly in China. They know how to navigate it like the back of their hand. They just grow up in this environment and they're accustomed to it. Yep. And they can help you find stuff really fast. Um, the other is depending on the product. So, find, so you probably have in-house just a 168 expert or more, like all of the people who source. Yeah. They, they just know how to navigate They know that. 168 really well. The yeah. other option is China is very uh, sectioned. I don't really know how to say this correctly, but um, you had a... you. Said once in one of your shorts, Iwu is like the hotbed of trading companies <clears throat> and lots of different knickknack things, tons of them. Yeah. Tons. Well, Taijo is the center for sunglasses. You mm-hmm. want to find sunglasses? Go to Taijo. You want to find molds so that you can make a mold to do a blow mold? Go to Ninghai or Ningbo. You're going to find molding companies everywhere. And these different parts of China, similar to how like a language dialect continues to exist because the people teach each other the dialect, uh-huh. there are industries that are localized, that are localized in China throughout the country. And so if you know of a product that you want to make or buy, if you find the right place in China, you're going to find all the factories, a hotbed of them just right in one spot. And so a lot of it, if you are looking to make and so many people don't know that. Yeah. If this is if you're if you've got a big deal that you're trying to sort through and it's worth a lot of money, you always go to where all the factories are. And you bring someone from that a native, if you can find a native in that area that you trust, or that you can you know you can trust or something like that. Right. To bring you out there and they'll just give you tours of these places half the time. Some of the factories are locked down. Some of them don't like you seeing inside their processes, but most of them know you're just, you don't care about how they manufacture it or their trade secrets. You care about trust, whether or not I can work with you. And are you the right factory for my needs? You know, is your, are you this humongous factory and I need someone who's like a mom and pop shop that's a lot smaller because my orders are low, low MOQs, you know, that just hunting them down. So, yeah, that's really cool. That's super helpful. 
All right, so that's that's sourcing a factory. Then run me through sort of the pre-production sampling, um, QC during production. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How how did you help clients out with that? So this was actually one that I struggled on the most, I would say, while I was working with Innovasia. Um, a lot of it is because the quality... Yeah, the is, company is called Innovasia, by the way. I don't yeah. know why we haven't said that. Yeah. Innovasia. But, but yeah, yeah Innovasia. So the, the clients determine the quality. They want a certain level of quality. That's usually how it works. And if you ship them crap, they don't want it. You know, if you if a shipment shows up and it's not the quality that they want, they don't want the product. And so it it can be a struggle sometimes because they'll sometimes clients will identify something that they perceive as high quality and then you they haven't necessarily put it through the pit the, its paces. So yeah, most of the time the client is looking for a specific quality level. The biggest struggle that I've had is they'll bring you a previous version of their product or somebody else's product um, that's a competitor in their same space. Um, and then they'll show you what they're trying to get. And um, you can work with a factory and send them these objects and you can get them verified. I would say durabil- testing for durability was my personal biggest weakness of helping clients assess quality and make sure the quality was good. Mm-hmm. Um, putting together supply chains and having multiple factories manufacture all the different pieces and then ship them to a centralized location to assemble everything. I loved that part. That part was so much fun. Why why do you think the quality was so hard to figure out? I think quality is hard because if, if you haven't, especially for products that have a lifespan, the people that the client has said, there's a, we'll guarantee this for a year, right? Like we'll, we'll make sure that it lasts a whole year. Or we'll make sure it lasts two years. If it doesn't, we'll replace it. You know, how do you test a whole year? Yeah, but they also want it in three months. Yeah, yeah. they want it in three months. And then the client assumes that it's going to last a year because that's what they're guaranteeing to people. And then they're replacing the product. I don't know. But there were just so many times where that would be, it felt sometimes with clients, it would feel gimmicky. And that was something that I never really cracked while I was in Avasia. I ended up moving into just working more on the software stuff that mm. that I kind of uncovered. But I feel like one of the things that I wish I had done is assess with the client that each time they decide to make a change, if the product is designed to last a year, any modifications or changes or improvements that you perceive as improvements, they may not necessarily be improvements if you already have something that you know works. Mm. that's important because if you decide to change something but they want it in three months you can sure you can switch to a new factory and order that different piece for them on that product to switch it out but you don't know how long it's going to last and then other times uh, they identify the competitor and they're like well they're using this kind of material and it's clearly working for them and in reality you store it in your basement for a year and you find out that theirs was having the same defects that they claimed theirs was having after mm. I switched to their materials. <clears throat> it's a bunch of he said, she said. Like they, yeah. yeah. It can be hard. It can be really hard. So, but oh, that's, it's really interesting because they, I feel like it's, it's, from my experience, it's like a mindset issue almost. Like people view their 
factories as no more than just costs. Like it's five dollars. This shit didn't work. Like yeah. send it back. It's like they really are your partners. And and the the people that have the people that I've seen run supply chains the best are the ones who actually see their factories as humans and as partners. Like mm-hmm. like hey we're both looking at the same problem and we're trying to solve it here. It's like, it's not your fault. Yeah. Um, there was something not communicated, a deep, like, yeah, I think it's a mindset issue that a lot of people have. Yeah. So. Admittedly, I haven't run into many problems with factories underperforming or having poor quality. What I've run into more frequently is that the factory executes based on what we've communicated and the client either undercommunicated um, or uh, didn't test all the way. Um, and so, so I think that's the what one you're of the biggest saying problems is, is, is you send the clients a sample, yeah. they give you a green light. And as a supplier, it's not assumed that you are going to do all of the testing on their behalf from a, from a functionality standpoint. Right. You're not a daily user necessarily. You're helping them source it. So a lot of it's contractual, I think, that maybe contracts mm. need to be updated, that if we decide to switch to this, that we're not at fault for, you know, like, hey, I'm going to have you sign this. You want to switch it and you want it in three months, but you're guaranteeing your clients a year. We are no longer liable if this doesn't pan out the way that you want it to, because we know this does work. Yeah, we're, we're not signing off on this, this. And that's not because we're bad at our jobs. It's because yeah. like we... This goes back, me and Jason were talking about this, and it's just supply chain and Emerson as well. Um, Supply chain and logistics and like everything is so unpredictable. That's the only predictable thing is it's unpredictable. And like, I, no matter how rigorous the testing, like I can't guarantee that this product is going to work for two years. And that doesn't mean that like, Innovation is horrible or like the factory sucks. It's just yeah. like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like we chose, I mean, as it's, it's almost like it's your fault, right? You chose the products and what you decided to put into the product. We executed on that. The factory executed on it perfectly and you got the product that you wanted. Um, and when, yeah, so, so yeah, I think that's sometimes the biggest thing. And this, this also, in my opinion, it comes from, um, so Jason from Klugonix, he's 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 like a he's like a gunslinging engineer, product developer guy. Like you, you almost need a a Jason on your team on the client side, where like an engineer who like will dissect it and see how it works and test every Make little sure way. Good. But the the thing is, most most people they either don't outsource an engineer to do those things. It's just like the supply chain guy. He's just kind of like, oh, like dropping it and ripping it and pulling it. Like, oh, it looks good. It looks good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I've recalled one experience where the factory's quality was low. And every time we would plan visits, we would go see the factory and we would bring the products with defects. And then we would actually walk the factory floor with them sometimes. And we would talk about what stage of the manufacturing process is resulting in, is possibly resulting in the defect. It might only be like a 5% possibility that it happens, but somehow that 5% is sneaking through. Where is it happening? And then, you know, so scheduling a meeting with them and being respectful about it, not trying to call them out and say that they're terrible at what they're doing, but just bringing the proof into the room 
knowing that it is possible for it to not come out the way that they anticipated it would. And that's all right. The question is now, how do we help the client get exactly. a better experience afterwards? And th- this is interesting right here. So say say you receive a product, there's a defect. Again, going back to like my experience in ops and purchasers who might be watching this, like instead of like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you know, being so pissed. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Which some case... Some cases, like, yeah, you have a right to be pissed, but, like, more often than not, it's more like, okay, like, let's calm down, assess the defect rate. Was it just one pissed-off client that received it? Like, what's the actual percentage of defects? Like, how how would you, what advice would you give to a client on how to approach it to get the best results? So, you find out there's a defect. Then what happens on the client? What what would you recommend on the client's end? And then what would Innovasia go and do to investigate and find that? Yeah, I think these are the defects are probably the most anxiety inducing thing you can do as a supply <laughs> chain manager because you are managing a hap- you're trying to keep your customer happy and you're also trying to manage and negotiate with the factory and manage the relationship with the factory at the same time. Because if you just go in and burn them. Yeah. And it's going to ruin your relationship with them. And they don't want to manufacture for someone who's always mad at them. In the, yeah. So yeah. so you almost have to approach it as the nice guy from both sides. And you have to internalize all that anxiety and just decide to let it go. And then you go to the factories, you schedule these times with them. And I said in, I said a second ago, you have to like be like, look, everything is all right. You know, when you show them the defects, you're going to be like, look, we're not mad at you. Everything's fine. But we do need to make changes. Because if we don't make changes, then the client will keep being frustrated. Otherwise, we need to change what's in the contract with you. Because with you, you said you're going to have a 98% uh, no defect rate. And right now, they have enough to show that it's 96, right? Um, So they're having 4% are defects. How can we improve this, right? What can we change? Do we need to change the contract? That's okay too, if that's what we need to do. Because if the contract is changed, then the client can decide whether or not they want to keep working with you. Yep. And that's okay. If we, if you guys lose this one customer, I'm sure that you have other clients that you can keep working for that aren't as frustrated as this person. We'll go find a new factory. That's like the worst case scenario, in my opinion, because it means a whole lot of extra work on your side to go source a brand new factory. Yep. Then you might have to remake new molds. There's tons of stuff to be doing. But ultimately... Helping that factory stay calm and not freak out and not get mad at you, you not getting mad at them, just working through that process and being logical about it. Just like, here's where the defect is every single time. What machine is that? Or what person is doing that? Or what role is uh, okay, playing so, it? Like, and let's, breaking that down. You let's know, say there's a, so there's a plush toy and there's a, like you said, there's a 4% defect rate. Yeah. Right. Um, so client gets pissed. They come to you. You're just like, okay, okay. All right. Chill out. We're going to go find out what happened. Come to the factory. Hey, looks like there's a 4 to 6% defect right here. You said there was going to be two. All good. So then you're going on the line and you're you're checking out everything. Like that you're looking how they receive the the raw materials where they where they stuff it. Um the packet like 
you're just checking at every point. Hmm, where could this tear have happened, or where was the label possibly put upside down? Right, like stuff like that. Yeah, okay, that's exactly right. And then a lot of times, I would say it's adding one more quality assurance person. The factory workers oftentimes are going to make mistakes because they're trying to go for speed. They need output, and that's, that's why, how they make money, right? And that's why in factories you always have a counterparty that they don't get paid for how much comes off the line. They get paid based on them making sure that the quality assurance stays at 99% or whatever yep. percent they've signed at. And so um, if you need to hire another person to be another quality assurance person on the line, your prices might go up a little bit. Mm. But if that means that you get and the 4% back... When you, when you say hire another quality assurance person, are you talking about just like some, somebody not even affiliated with a factory just a, a third-party person that you hire yourself or oftentimes third-party inspection service it, like, it can go lots of different ways how you and the factory decide to handle that is oftentimes between you and the factory because you are you're editing their standard process and changing it to better suit the client that you're serving right and the factory is okay with that usually they're happy to to make ends meet and then we'll do surprise visits sometimes to make sure that they're actually following through on the commitments uh, that we decided on. Um, and depending on the distance of the factory, surprise visits, oftentimes you can't do them as frequently as you'd want to. But if you're just sitting around and you don't have a lot to do all day, it's nice to do surprise visits to factories out there, uh, especially Mondays when America is still asleep, you don't have a lot going on. Easy day. The Sunday in the States and you can go out and you can just go surprise visit factories on their Monday mm. and see if they're doing their, their supply chains correctly. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, quality is by far the most stressful part of being a supply chain manager, I think. Um, just because it's not always in your power to change. It's something that you can help the factory make a decision about and help the factory assess what's happening and make better decisions and you can get educated on that industry and then figure out how the manufacturing works to a T but a lot of times they have all the experience and so when you walk in with a defect mm. sometimes it even blows their mind that it even occurred they're like I have no clue how this would have even happened and I'm like well it did we both know it did so let's work backwards what could we do and what would the cost change be if we need to if we need to mitigate this? If it's this important to the client to mitigate it, what's the cost chain cost change for us? I'll present that to the client and then they can decide if they are comfortable with the four percent defect rate or if they want to move back to ninety nine and they're comfortable paying a tiny bit more and they're getting a better uh, consistency out of their product, stuff like that. Right. Those are the <clears throat> the number of times I I Honestly, it's been it was a handful of times that I really had to do it. Um, but that's so, how we so closing this out a little bit, what if if you could sum up your advice to gunslinging operators, kind of like wearing multiple hats, who I have a lot of empathy for in the United States, we've had a bunch of them on the podcast. If you had to sum up your advice on doing business with factories. What what would you tell them if if they're not going to go the innovation route, like the boots on the ground, am I helping? Um, what advice would you give them on on dealing with your factories? Quality assurance specific or just general? 
Just general. Just general. Like, what are some takeaways from like that convo that we just had? Uh, you know, I I would say that there's not a lot of risk in just putting in the time to reach out to lots of factories. I mean, your biggest risk is just loss of time. That's really it. And sometimes that's what it takes to actually get what you need. Sourcing is a mixed bag. You're going to dive into all sorts of different places and you're going to find different levels of success with each place that you dive into. And for some industries, it's going to be very straightforward to hop onto something like Alibaba and find what you're looking for. But if you're looking at a packed a package deal where you actually need to get like three or four different things mm. to bring them together, then you may want to seek a partner or a trading company that you could partner with and bite the cost of the extra value of the extra cost. As long as you know that if you know you're partnering with a trading company, then you can start to expect things from a trading company, expect what the trading company should be capable of doing, checking on the factories, going and making sure that the assembly is coming together appropriately at whatever factory is assembling things, stuff like stuff of that nature. So yeah, I, I would say take a look at what product you're trying to make and then talk to somebody experienced enough with all this to say, you could just do that on Alibaba. Or you're going to want to travel to China because this is way too complicated. Um, And then the last thing I would say is a lot of these Chinese factories, like the sunglasses factories, they like to mess around and make new designs. Nobody's bought them. They'll spend time making a new design that nobody has bought. They just, they have the extra time. They want to make their skills better. Mm-hmm. And if you actually travel out there or you find a trading company who's willing to go out there in person and take a look at the random things that they're making, sometimes you can find a product that the factory is willing to manufacture for you that nobody else has sold and they're just waiting for someone to decide to buy it. So it's kind of a gold mine in some of these places where if you're trying to do fast e-commerce and find the next hot thing. I remember going to China, finding this really cool pair of sunglasses that I love. It's actually it's in my car right now. I didn't bring them in, but... Um, I came back to the States and I browsed through a bunch of websites, didn't find anybody that was selling them. And then three months later, they started showing up in my Facebook ads. And it was one of those companies that they started the company. They've listed this one type of sunglasses for sale. And then after eight months, the company disappeared. Wow. They did one big sales run of a sunglass, a specific kind of sunglasses, got people hyped up for it. You know, I don't know if you've seen those kinds of brands where they, they yeah. they're oh, yeah. purpose built brand just for one thing and then they disip they fall off the face of the map oh, as yeah. soon as they get the sale that they're looking for. So almost like a Kickstarter, but different yeah. approach. Anyways, I digress. But point is there's lots of ways to get into e-commerce and there are lots of ways to approach sourcing. I think just talking to somebody about how you need to approach it is going to be the fastest way. Uh, if you don't want to use Innovasia at all, just go get your toes dirty. Get, yeah. get your toes wet, you know? Get Go talk to people, cold call, hop on Alibaba. Uh, go to 168 if you speak Chinese. Yeah. Get somebody to Chinese. help you navigate it. And you know what? Maybe with website translation tools, maybe nowadays 168 might actually be pretty useful. I haven't been on since so you can just click translate website True. and all of it pops into English. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I if I had to summarize, like the point that I took was, um, as somebody who has run purchasing before, it's look at your relationships with factories as partnerships. 
Mm. And, you know, they're not just a cost. So if something's defective, if something is like always dive deep, understanding that there is an actual human on the other side. They're not just $5 per unit. It's there's re and a lot of times kind of everything that you are saying with quality control, it has to do with lack of clarity on the client's end. Like what type of results do you want? Are you clear on that? Are you clear on those expectations? Doesn't seem like you're very clear. Like, Always be as clear as you can get with your expectations on the product. Put it in writing, put it in pictures, put it as much details as you possibly can. And the factory will most likely be able to get that out. Yeah, they'll be able Um, to do it right. I love your your takeaway, actually. So I think what I missed from just everything I talked about is that if someone's trying to not use a third party, then they need to leverage everything we just talked about to actually perform the job function. Yeah, yeah. And, and most people will go that route. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so switching gears a little bit. Um, we've talked a little bit about this off camera, but what what trends do you see in China and in manufacturing? Because for those of you that don't know, um, you're about to spend a lot of time in Latin America um, with factories um, we've, we've talked a little bit about Vietnam, yeah. um, labor costs rising in China. Um, uh, these are all things that you read on headlines, but what have yeah. you actually seen when it comes to sourcing, diversifying your supply chain? It's like the buzzword, like so many companies advertise on it, but like, what have you actually seen to products switching their manufacturing to Vietnam? Why? Mm-hmm. And then also switching your supply chain to Latin American countries. Why? Yeah. So there's a myriad of reasons. I would say the biggest one is uh, a lot uncertainty. Diversifying from China, I think right now the biggest is uncertainty. And that's mostly just because <clears throat> back in, um, I think it was 2021, there were widespread power outages in China during oh, COVID. We, yeah, we experienced that. Yeah, we had a factory that was down for a whole week. We thought it was no excuses. I, we honestly thought it was excuses. But oh, like, yeah, the government, the government controlled the power because of, you know, I. it's hard to identify exactly where in China's supply chain what happened that caused them to have such widespread power outages. But I, I boil it down to a little bit of just China... L- Everything in China is owned by China. And, the government. Yes. And so you don't necessarily, no factory owner actually owns their factory. I I know that some Chinese people, if they're watching this and they hear me say that, they're going to be kind of like, ah, like mad about that a little bit when I say that. And I think culturally they don't not, they don't like to think about it that way. But I see it that way. I see that everything that's there is actually owned by China. And so China has no empathy for the factories. They see it as it's a teeny portion of potential commerce that brings in a little bit of taxes. And if they have to shut down for a while because other things are more important, so be it. And all everybody else can go take a hike, kick rocks, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that when they did that, when China did that, and they caused so much uncertainty in the market well, also to, to add to that, uh, Trump's tariffs, like that, yeah. was, that was massive. Yeah, that was huge. Trump's tariffs were big. Um, 
I was extremely appreciative of the balancing effect that Trump's tariffs had in the long run. In the short term, it was difficult to manage because the prices were changing so quickly. And oftentimes a shipment that shipped, a new tariff would be would happen while the shipment's on the water. Mm-hmm. And then you had to figure out whether or not you were under, you know, if you had shot yourself in the foot and, right. and sold at the wrong price. But ultimately it's just uncertainty that it kind of boils into. And um what stinks is that all the infrastructure is in China. Pretty much all of it. In fact, in Guatemala, the factory that we just opened, we bought all of our sewing machines from China. They're all from China. So, And when you say infrastructure, you're talking about manufacturing infrastructure. Yeah. Like the machines and the, the machines. experience and yes. the people, the workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other places it's from <clears throat> is Korea. Korea is another big part of the uh, textile industry. Um, but these countries like Vietnam, who's currently trying to bite off a huge portion of the textile market right now and apparel market, they, they're they buying up machines that aren't from their country. They're not the originators of these machines, from my knowledge that I have personally. And so you end up with this very segmented supply chain in the world now because people don't want to buy from China as much. They want to diversify they want to have like an 80-20 where maybe 80% is still China and then the other 20% is somewhere else, uh, some other place. And maybe they're paying more for that 20%, but it keeps the factory moving and chugging on it so that they know that if something hits, if crap hits the fan, they can go back to Guatemala and they can raise their 20 in Guatemala up to 60 or 70. Yep. Um, and with a factory that has experience with them, that's important. Uh, but right now because no country has the infrastructure that china has we're all just kind of suffering from it because biden didn't change the tariffs like everyone thought he was going to because america's actually making money from that mm-hmm. nobody thinks about it that way we have these huge debts to pay and yet we charge no one for shipping things into our own country i ship a backpack from here to china as a sample for the factory to take a look at mm-hmm. $300. Wow. I shipped the same backpack from China to the States, 40 Wow. So China, who, who gets that money? Not the shipping company. That's the tariff. That's what I'm, I'm paying that money to the government of China to ship into their country. Yep. So China doesn't want anybody to ship things into their country. They said no, because they're not producers. They're consumers at that point. Yep. And that's not what the position that they've wanted to have in the market. They've wanted to force their people to go make everything on their own so they become proficient at it, and then they become mass exporters. It's a brilliant strategy. If you look at the two countries, and this is a totally different topic, right. but if you look at the two countries economically, I really think America's on a dangerous long-term path, extremely dangerous long-term path, and not changing the tariffs was a very, in my opinion, a very decisive, astute move you know, knowing Biden administration, I don't know that it was decisive, but I believe it was a wise decision. Yeah, whether it was accidental or like deliberate. Or deliberate, yeah. The fact that they didn't switch it back and they're letting that play out in a more long-term effect, I think is very smart. Um, While Trump was in office, the oil industry in America boomed because we decided it was important to bring oil to our own, getting oil from our own soil. Mm-hmm. And everyone freaks out about this, but 
we charge the electric cars from fuel that's burnt at a factory. I feel like everybody says this, but no one's, for some reason, people don't comprehend it yet, is that we can't just suddenly switch all over to these renewables. It's going to take time. Yeah. And while it's taking that time, why are we chopping ourselves off at the knee trying to cut all of our oil manufacturing? Why not just manufacture as much as we can so it's cheaper to make the solar panels, it's cheaper to make the wind farms, it's cheaper to make the hydroelectric plants. The cheap oil being cheap means it's cheaper to do all of the things that we need to make to make the renewables. Yep. So you may as well make that as cheap as you possibly can so that you can actually execute on your big vision. And then once that's executed, then the need for that goes down. But at least it was right. a cheap resource while you were doing it. Don't make the cost high. It makes it hard to get these other things done. So that's just big that's picture not, world perspectives. Um, but coming looping back to just diversification, right? Uh, none of the world is currently ready to consume the original infrastructure productions uh, scale that China had at scale. That's interesting. Vietnam maybe can eat off 20% of the apparel industry. Guatemala, maybe five. Like from what I've seen and the numbers that I've seen just occasionally. And I mean, you can go out to Walmart and Target and these big companies. If you get in underneath the surface, you'll see that they're manufacturing everywhere all over the world, these biggest companies. Mm. And it's for a reason. It's because if they have this much throughput, they actually need to leverage an entire infrastructure of the whole world. And maybe they've sped things up and they actually entered these countries within the last three years. But after visiting Guatemala and visiting other countries, I feel like the Indonesia, I feel like the relationship that they've had with these companies goes far beyond before COVID. So the infrastructure is starting and the skill sets are there, but it's going to take a lot of time. Um, That's What you're bringing up is really interesting and most people don't understand it, which is it's not just, ah, I want to, like, manufacturing is going out of China. Like, like it's like this buzz term diversification of supply chain, but the, that infrastructure that's been built up over decades and decades, which is machinery, it's skilled labor, it's just, it's the supply chains within China. It's, skilled operations. Yeah. These factories are efficient. China's efficient. It's that, I mean, there's so much that goes into a manufacturing country. And yes, while Vietnam has been doing that, but like, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to take all of the molding manufacturing and let's do it in Vietnam. Like what? Like, yeah, it, that, that might not happen. Or even in Latin America, like you might have one or two factories that do wood really well, but like, do they have the same skilled labor that China does for cutting boards or something? Like it's, yeah, it's totally different. It's more complex than people think. It is really complex and it's hard to gauge. It's almost like you need to go visit the country in person from a supply chain, someone who's done it in the past. From my perspective, I do feel like you actually need to go out and just see if the proof is in the pudding. Mm -hmm. You got to just go and do the footwork to see if it's there or not. And if you've been to China before, you know what you're looking for. You know, oh, if, yeah. if, you know, these guys know their stuff or if they're, if they don't know their stuff at all. It's pretty clear, pretty fast. So, yeah. So let, let's, let's transition into Guatemala and sort of what you're up to nowadays. Yeah. So like all of this experience and discussion around manufacturing and 
your you know your past decade of experience with that what what has that led you to do now i know you've you've started a software company and you're going yeah. to guatemala to to ba- basically sell it yep let's so, hear it man uh so i this whole journey with china while i was there i realized i really didn't have my dad's skill set and most of that was experience but there was no way that i could overcome that in an exceptionally short period of time you know my dad just has he just doesn't forget things because he has so much experience with them. For me, I struggled to remember all the fine details all the time. It's like having a hundred things in your head at once with supply chains. There's so many things to keep track of. Your invoicing, your logistics, your uh, the different invoices at different stages of the logistics that you need to provide to customs, the detailed packing lists, all this stuff. So it occurred to me that I needed to systematize what was happening if I wanted to be as effective as my dad was at it. And I like to say, it's like carrying a backpack around. If you have a good backpack, you can carry everything that you need every day. If you have a terrible backpack, you're going to end up with a lot of stuff in your arms. You're going to feel clumsy and you're not going to be able to get (laughs) and do what you need to do throughout the day. So having the right backpack allows you to perform the right job. And that's what software has really done for us. The same way that a backpack lets us carry a bunch of new stuff, Software has allowed the world to operate so much more efficiently than it ever could have and with much less knowledge Mm. and much less skill. Software also allows people that are less skilled to achieve much higher uh, efficiencies. So that's what I set out to do. I set out to systemize the process that Innovasia was doing. And the journey that it led me down in Guatemala now is we started in China when China shut down in 2020 because we couldn't get anything out of China. We moved to Guatemala. So I built a software in China and then I built the software in Guatemala. So you, you built in China I with your all partner factories, like yeah. ones that, was it ones that you owned or partners? Like just like trading companies. Ra- Long term partners that you. We owned the trading company that uh, was there, but we. Uh, the factories were all very close partners, like 10-year, 10-plus-year partners um, that we integrated it with. Um, and really, we just figured out good ways to integrate with the factories. Um, we found out ways that didn't mess with their processes, and it was all through the trading company. Mm. The trading company gave us the <clears throat> boots on the ground that were necessary to do the level of implementation that we would we were capable of. So is is this software is it more for trading companies? Like or like sourcing Initially agencies? it was designed for supply chain companies, so trading companies. Got it. Um that was the first integration. And what it created was essentially a huge amount of transparency between the factory's information and the client. We went from 48 hours of late data. So Typically, we would gather all these Excel sheets together. It was two people around the clock. They would start Monday and they'd send out a report on on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And then they would start Wednesday and they'd send out a report on Friday. And then they'd start Friday and they'd send out a report on Monday. And so every time the client was getting information, it was 48 hours behind what was actually happening because they would get all the Excel docs and then they'd merge all of them together and then put them all into one where that was legible. Because they were all different right. formats too. It's yeah. all different formats. And I just like, I, I talked to the client and they said, look, we could have saved $6,000 if we knew that this was that far behind 48 hours ago. 
We could have told them to stop what they're doing 48 hours ago and let this skew go. It doesn't need to happen because in the garments industry, uh, it's uh, seasonal. So if something's too far behind and you're not going to make the season, just stop making what you're making. Cut your losses there. Pay the two grand that you spent to have the fabric manufactured mm-hmm. and then let the fabric get consumed somewhere else. Don't go dye it. Yeah. Right. So these timelines were imperative. If they could know 48 hours, if if they didn't have that 48 hour delay, they could have been saving six grand every week, maybe even. Mm. Sometimes upwards of hundreds of thousands. Um Easily six grand a week for sure. I know just looking back at it, I, I personally recall on during integration, seeing them decide to cancel things while wow. we were integrating it. Um, and so then it, then it got to the point where uh, the data from the factories wasn't always perfectly accurate. We had, we had unskilled labor putting in the data and it was causing the client to, because it was so instantaneous, it was causing the client to make poor decisions at that mm. point. So it flipped the needle on the other, completely to the other side where they were saving tons of money and then suddenly we were actually just giving them bad data for a while. Um, and uh, the data would get cleaned up after 24 hours or sometimes within two or three hours even, depending on when people are going to sleep, right? And the timing, so the time zones. But essentially, we completely streamlined all the transparency and the client was able to peer through every single factory all the way down to the cotton mills that were making all the cotton and the polyester to bring those items all the way up to the surface. So they could tell forecasting from a forecasting perspective whether or not things were going to be late way ahead of time and then make decisions really early. Got it. So so this it provides visibility into the actual manufacturing flow from start to finish. Yeah. And it's it's like, where are we at on production? Well, like here we are. Like the mm-hmm. we purchase raw materials, or like it's everything's. It, the production has started. It's in this line right here. It's oh, it's in the packaging phase. Like yep. Okay, got it. Or That's, how many units are in the packaging phase? How many units is it that detailed? Uh, yeah. No, yeah. You. I mean, it's daily. Mm-hmm. It's a daily update usually that the factories will report into. Um, if you have the scanning system set up within the factory on the factory floor, then it could be instant, almost instantaneous about like you seeing literal objects being worked on by employees. But from the client's perspective, they don't necessarily care about what is uh, Jose working on right now. Right. They just care about how many units are finishing at the end of each day and seeing those averages so they can make sure that the production is happening in the way that it's supposed to so that they're going to meet their uh, deadlines for the season. At least in apparel industries. Um, It also helps with knowing when your purchase is going to arrive in the first place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Big (laughs) stuff. That's that's just general. There's so much that goes into that, like planning for marketing. If you're doing like a a drop-based business, like, um, yeah, that's interesting. So how how do you, this is what I'm curious for, like, how do you get factories to adopt that? Yeah. Like, I mean, that that seems like it's got to be super challenging. So th- this was the trick. This was the trick for us. This was really hard. Um, we, with the trading company, we had them do all the footwork. So the trading companies would go out, they would do surprise visits, and they would meet with the factories and they'd gather the data and they'd have it all in one format. And then they'd bring all that data together and it would instantly go into the database at the end of every day. Sometimes they'd have to be offline because they're too remote and they don't have cell service at the factory. And then they'd put that in Excel sheet and upload that into the system within about two hours of collecting that information. 
Um, but the factories themselves, the ones that we partnered with the closest, that did decide to use the software to update the dates, um, what it resulted in is there was a lot more uh, building of trust because you had to trust each other that you were going to do this. And then we would do surprise visits less frequently to just check that what they were inputting was correct. Mm. And if it was wrong, then we would decrease the vendor score on them. Or we would we would come down hard and be like, look, I don't know if we can trust you. You know, like you just, you can say little things like that and it'll put them on edge a bit and re- make them realize you're taking the data they're entering seriously. That's the main thing. You have to let them know that what they're entering, you're taking it seriously. Yep. If I cancel a PO, and you're like, why did they cancel that? And it's like, well, you inputted this data and they canceled it. It's like, well, that was that was wrong. It was, whatever. It's like, was it wrong? Or, right, like there was a certain amount of trust that went back and forth. But as soon as the rubber hit the road, so to speak, and you found traction, suddenly it just became amazing. Where the factories realized that they could provide the client with the right information that would help them make their best decisions. And the client could see the information and the client would take the quality control on their side and they would feed quality control reports back into the software, which Mm -hmm. would then result on the factory's tray. So it created a loop where the factory would send things out and then the client would receive them and do quality assurance on their own side. And then the, the quality assurance would get consumed by the software and get sent all the way back to the factory. And it created this really pretty closed loop where the factories were able to see that the client was being responsible and the factory was able to see that they were, uh, yeah, vice and vice versa. Mm. But what it came down to in the long run is that the upper C-suites need to buy off. If the C-suite doesn't buy off, your chances of integrating successfully with the factory is... uh, Bubkis. Because the people on the factory floor, they already have some process in mind that they're accustomed to. And they don't want to go learn something new. They hate it. They really do. I hate to say that, but they don't like learning something new because they are so accustomed to something else that they've already done for so long. So integrating with factories is extremely challenging. Um, and what we're trying to do with Sightline, the product that we're that we're it's called Sightline. Sightline. Yep. Yeah. Yeah product that we're trying to sell down there and working on selling down there. And I think we'll we'll probably end up calling Sightline Studio just for trademarking purposes because I think Sightline it appears has already been gobbled up by lots of different people. So we'll, we'll probably end up calling it Sightline Studio. But ultimately, um, if the C-suite buys off and you can actually provide them with a system of record that is friendly enough that people can learn it, oftentimes have no experience with software, clients like to use their factories. Clients like it when they have transparency. Mm. If the client has transparency, your factory becomes much more popular. And this is what I talked to you about on uh, offline, which is just like factories have a system of record. Like I feel like the winning strategy here is integrating with the customers in the United States, their yes. system of record. And that's going to yes. be the challenge is like in their PO writing process or forecasting. And that's where I came and talked to you and why I was going to have a lunch with you because as much as I want to build the client portal, I also recognize there are already a lot of client portals that are incredibly good exactly. in the States. Yep. And 
while I've been out here trying to tackle the system of record for factories and try to make that process really good so that the factory can advertise to the world that, hey, uh, partner with Luminous, partner with so-and-so, we're working with them. You know, and we have a portal you can log into. It's not as pretty. It's not as user-friendly for you because it's just mm-hmm. for visibility. Yep. Um, but if you're working with somebody like you and in the future we can get this off the ground, the idea is, is that uh, quotes show up right in your software when the, when the company makes the quote. Because yep. they're not doing it in an Excel sheet anymore. They're doing it in a cloud-based system. Mm-hmm. And if it's in a cloud... Couple API calls, and suddenly it's all in everybody else's systems. But most, most important, in my opinion, like the value add for ops people is like up to date actual lead times on purchase orders. Mm-hmm. Like so many, and you experience this just at Innovasia. I'm sure it's like, hey, when are we going to get this? Hey, what's update lead time? Like, if you had something cloud based, you could actually trust that like all oh, this factory is actually updating me. Then. Uh, yeah, that's that's really cool. If I can just go to my PO and there's like a Pizza Hut tracker, like yeah. it's like I see exactly where it is and the new estimated arrival date, or if it's gonna send in split shipments, like it's just really easy to see. Like that that'll be cool. Yeah, I think the other thing that we're gonna work on in the long term is, um, and this is actually funny, uh, Innovasia started taking the software and what they started doing with it is they created 15 day reports. Um, and the 15-day reports they would send to the clients were based on Innovasia's perspective of the data that they saw from the factories. Mm. And this is basically taking a lot of high detail, highly detailed information and turning it into something that the client can act on, actionable data for the clients. And right now at uh, with Sightline, that's what we're the next big thing that we're going to try to fully comprehend for each industry. What's the actionable information that each client needs to work in their industry correctly? And it's something that at Luminous, I think you're probably already having to deal with and tackle every day. What is the missing dashboard yep. thing that they wish they had they're complaining about oh, every day? Do this right? <laughs> so, daily conversation. Yeah, so yeah. figuring out that, that <laughs> actionable information is absolutely game-changing for clients. And the funny thing is, is I think for every client, it's a little different because they have different strategies. Apparel industry, it's seasonal. So it's very different than an industry that's not seasonal. Even from my perspective, like uh, it's industry-specific, but it's also attribute-specific. Like a a company that has a 3PL or multiple 3PLs or a company that sells on Amazon, a company that sells wholesale, a company that's, they do in-house fulfillment and they want to, like, those attributes create totally different dashboards that they want to see, that they value in the business. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it's the exact same thing on the factory end. Yeah. Like, on the factory end, I think the reporting and the actionable information is very different, but it is still uh, the kind of information that they wish they could know is still important. Yep. Um, and I uh, I think that where, where this could become valuable is if we can democratize factory software. I don't know if that's the, ex- the right word to use, but essentially make it so that it's cheap enough that all these third-party countries can consume it. That's been the biggest problem that I've seen so far. These factories, they're really working on pennies out there. 
They're not the most、yeah. wealthy people in the world. They make a living doing hard labor, right? And that's the living. That's how they do. And every cost cuts to their bottom line.、So、exactly. So like that. That's that's what when when we had that lunch, I, I was just like, oh, like I'm glad somebody's trying to solve that end. Because I, I I went down that route a little bit, and I realized like you gotta be able to monetize on the factory, and and, and that's when I you know I. I、Go、went the, clients, the, the、yeah. luminous route. Yeah, so I, I'm glad somebody's like trying to tackle that. But that that is it's a gargantuan problem. So good luck with that. Like it's appreciate it. It's it, it's a、uh, it's a hard problem to tackle. So respect for you trying to build、yeah. that. And like Rossin's go, he's he's going to、um, Guatemala、wow. soon. Obviously, he's been boots on the ground trying to lived in Iwu, speaks Chinese. He's been all over. The, so like. Yeah, respect to you as a builder.、Um, But yeah, that yeah. that's the long term goal of of LZ Tech building sightline is、um, we wanted to make it so that factories that are in any country would be able to afford software that lets them optimize their internal processes and not and give visibility it, to their clients and give visibility to the clients. Yes,、yeah. that's the gold nugget because you can have a system of record for a factory, but does a client ever have access to it?、Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't even know of a software that does that specifically. Right, right. So that's a breakthrough point if we can really get there. And I think it's more about partnerships、yeah. with companies like yourself that will make that happen in the long run. But in the short term, it really is about making it so that these factories have reliable software platforms that are cheap enough that they can use to make it so that their、uh, clients are more excited to work with them because they do have a, a system of record and they do keep track of everything and it's not messy Excel sheets that people throw together in a couple of hours and then send it over hoping that it answers the questions that、right. they want to get. No,、answered. exactly. So.、Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's well, a big picture. Yeah, we're running low on time right now, but、um, that was that was a fun podcast.、Um, it was. I、yeah. appreciate you stopping by. I think there was a lot of value in that. Yeah, I think. I,、uh, I, I hope a lot of people listen to this one. If if you're wanting like sourcing tips, if you're wanting to understand what happens behind the scenes, like that was that was pretty sweet. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to actually be on a podcast. I, I think now that we're now that our company is in the place where we're at right now with Sightline, it's time to just start talking to people because we're getting that part where now we're really excited. We're actually getting to sell it to people. People are getting to use it. They're excited to use it because it's simplifying their internal factories and their day to day so much. So, yeah, super grateful that you're able to bring me on and that I was able to even. Start talking about this. 